Welcome to NTD Evening News. Our top story tonight, disturbing details uncovered at the main hospital in the Gaza Strip. And the U.S. says there is hope as a deal to release the hostages is closer than ever. Jason Perry reports. Former President Trump could be back under gag order soon. Arlene Richards reports how a D.C. court is questioning if he could intimidate witnesses. How far can the former president go? President Biden today turning 81, how that could affect his 2024 chances and what the president says about his age while taking part in the White House tradition of pardoning Thanksgiving turkeys. A political shift in Argentina after almost 30 years of left-leaning presidents. A self-described capitalist is set to take over. Ariane Pastar tells us how this can affect the U.S. dollar. And millions of Americans hitting the road and taking to the skies for the holiday season. It's anticipated to be the busiest travel season ever. And severe thunderstorms are coming with it. Melina Weiskup has more on how the Transportation Administration plans to avoid a repeat disaster of last year's travel season. This is NTD Evening News. Live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City, here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. The war between Israel and Hamas rages on. The Israel Defense Forces strategy appears to have the terrorists on their heels. And as the IDF continues to push forward, a possible deal to release the hostages may now be within reach. NTD's Jason Perry has the update and a warning. This report contains graphic footage that may be disturbing. The Israel Defense Forces reported on Monday that they had detained over 300 terrorists in the Gaza Strip since the beginning of its ground operations, and the detainees were brought back to Israeli territory to be interrogated. The detainees were asked about Hamas terrorists staying in Al-Shifa Hospital. On Sunday, the IDF released videos of hostages who were taken to Al-Shifa Hospital shortly after the massacre on October 7th, one without any apparent injuries and another with severe injuries. IDF spokesperson Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari said this. The terrorists are guarding the room. We have not yet located both of these hostages and rescued them. We have not yet located them. We do not know where they are. The United States is also keeping a close eye on the hostage situation with a possible deal in the works. White House National Security spokesperson John Kirby said this on Monday. I know this is of great interest to all of you. Um, uh, I just want to let you know we're still working this hour by hour. I do not have an update for you on the hostage uh, uh, deal that we're trying to negotiate. Uh, but as you heard the Deputy National Security Advisor say yesterday, uh, we believe we're closer than we've ever been. So we're hopeful. 
And more hope came for the over 30 premature babies who were being cared for at Al-Shifa Hospital. The IDF said they provided incubators for the babies and released footage showing Israeli troops assisting with transporting the premature babies from the hospital on Sunday. And those babies were then cared for at a hospital in southern Gaza and are now receiving care in Egypt. On their way to Egypt, some of their mothers finally got a chance to see them. I have twin daughters. I did not know anything about their condition. Today, I saw them for the first time since the day I gave birth to them. Thank God, I was reassured that they were fine. When I saw them, I cried because I had not seen them for a while. I missed them very much and wanted to hold them in my arms. During its recent operations at Al-Shifa Hospital, the IDF reported finding a 60-yard-long tunnel beneath the hospital complex. Jason Perry, NTD News. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is on an unannounced visit to Ukraine today. While there, he announced $100 million in new military aid to the country. We gathered up some 50 countries from around the world to, uh, to work together and provide support. Uh, to, to Ukraine as it does its work. Um, but again, no matter how bad we want it, without the kind of help that you're, you're providing, it, it doesn't work. This is his second visit to Ukraine since the war began. The first visit came shortly after the war started, at a time when global sentiment was very much against Russia, and nations were eager to support Ukraine. This has now changed, and many are questioning the high sums of financial support countries are sending Ukraine. Ukraine aims to beef up its ability to make weapons independently through ventures with international arms producers. It's a response to concerns about potential shortages in Western supplies. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said Ukraine and the U.S. are actively working toward joint arms production. Former President Trump could see his gag order reinstated in the D.C. election case. A court is grappling with the terms today and seemed to indicate that some limit is needed. Here's our legal correspondent Arlene Richards with more. Mr. President! An attorney for former President Trump facing a three-judge panel after appealing a gag order that he says limits Trump too much. The order is unprecedented and it sets a terrible precedent for future restrictions on core political speech. District Judge Tanya Chutkin sided with federal prosecutors last month when she signed an order that set restrictions on public statements made by Trump. Statements that federal prosecutors argued threatened and harassed potential witnesses and public figures. At the moment, the appeals court has paused the order as Trump continues to fight it. Trump's attorney, John Sauer, refused to back down on his argument that the order strictly violates Trump's free speech rights. A judge on the panel of Democratic judicial appointees brought up the responsibility to protect witnesses in the case. If he were to communicate, pick up the phone and call someone that is known to him to be a witness, prospective witness in this case, and speak with that person without counsel present, would, could, would that, that would violate the, the restriction undoubtedly. Would the First Amendment protect that communication under your test? We have not contended that. It's not what I am asking. I'm asking you to apply the test that you propose us, because we have to write a test that can be applied, and we have to know how it's going to be applied. So I'm asking your position, your legal position, the gag order also prevents Trump from making statements about special counsel Jack Smith or his staff. The court pressed the government's attorney for answers on why Trump can't criticize prosecutors. 
why can't the defendant say A, B, and C, whoever is the prosecutorial team in the particular case, bias, racist, anti-American, whatever deplorable adjectives. I think in context, I think you'd have to view that as, as basically the Mendelssohn Priest problem. Why is he mentioning individual line prosecutors but for holding them up to, to um, uh, scorn in the public? The court seems poised to reinstate the gag order with some changes that will loosen restrictions placed on the former president. A ruling will likely come within the next few days or weeks. Regardless of what the decision is, it is expected that this issue will eventually make its way to the Supreme Court. Arlene Richards, NTD News. The White House is brushing off concerns over President Biden's age as he turns 81 today, but recent polling and the latest gaffe by the president are again raising questions. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more. As President Biden turns 81 today, he jokes about his age while pardoning this year's Thanksgiving turkeys named Liberty and Belle. But he also seemingly confused Britney Spears, who's not on tour, with Taylor Swift, who's on tour in Brazil. Watch. I, it's my birthday today, and they can actually sing birthday music. I just want you to know it's difficult turning 60. Now, just to get here, Liberty and Bell had to beat some tough odds, the competition. Even this harder than getting a, a ticket to the Renaissance tour or, or, or Rip Britney's tour. She's down in, it's kind of warm in Brazil right now. President Biden, who's the oldest commander-in-chief in U.S. history, frequently jokes about his age and has responded to such concerns by saying, watch me. The White House also defending President Biden's age today by drawing attention instead to his experience and legislative record. It's not about age. It's about the president's experience. That's what we believe. And it's, you know, as they say, the proof is in the pudding, right? The president has used his experience to pass more bipartisan legislation in recent time than any other president. That's just a fact. Despite the defense, polling continued to show warning signs for President Biden's re-election campaign. A recent poll by the New York Times-Siena College, for example, shows that 71 percent of battleground state voters think that Biden's too old to serve as the president. Meanwhile, a September poll by ABC News and The Washington Post say that three-quarters of Americans think Biden's too old to run, while about half of Americans think the same way of Trump. Other polls also show similar results, which is that more Americans are concerned about Biden's age than about Trump's. Meanwhile, both Biden's and Trump's campaigns have used the age factor and the other candidates' gaffes to target the other person. Back to you. The Supreme Court today turning down an appeal from Derek Chauvin. The former Minneapolis police officer was convicted of murder in connection to the death of George Floyd in 2020. Chauvin's attorney saying that the officer did not get a fair trial due to fear of violence that could unfold if he was acquitted. Floyd's death in 2020 triggered nationwide riots after a bystander footage showed Chauvin kneeling on Floyd's neck for approximately nine minutes. Autopsy report shows that heart failure and drug use were also factors in Floyd's death. Chauvin is currently serving a prison sentence for more than two decades. A federal appeals court ruled today that the U.S. government can make a claim under the Voting Rights Act, but private citizens and civil rights groups cannot. The Eighth Circuit of the U.S. Court of Appeals said only the U.S. Attorney General has the power to introduce legal challenges under the act. 
Section 2 of the Act prohibits voting practices or procedures that discriminate on the basis of race, color or language of minority groups. The decision could have a significant impact on the anti-discriminatory protections of the law. Legal analysts believe the ruling will likely be appealed to the Supreme Court and set up a major debate over voting rights. Argentina set a switch from left to right. Capitalist Javier Millet won the presidential election last night. NTD's Arian Postar shows us what Millet is known for and how this could affect the U.S. On Sunday night, self-described capitalist Javier Millet won the presidential election in Argentina with almost 56% of the vote. His opponent had just over 44%. This is the widest margin of victory in a presidential race since Argentina's return to democracy in 1983. Today, the impoverishing, omnipresent state model is over. Today, the idea that the state is loot to be shared among politicians and their friends is over. Millet is set to succeed a left-leaning president who was in power while Argentina experienced extremely high inflation, as you can see in this graph. Before winning the election, Millet gained international attention through clips like this one, in which he describes how he would cut government spending. And because of clips like this one, conservatives in Argentina and around the globe, quite frankly, now seem confident that Mille can turn Argentina around and improve the lives of millions of people. But can he really? To find out more, I spoke with Fergus Hodgson. He's the publisher of the Impunity Observer, an outlet focused on Latin America and the US. I don't expect any one man alone to turn an entire nation around. However, it is still a historic moment. This is really the, the battle beginning. At least there's an opening here. And he, with, with the right support, can make major changes. He says Argentina's previous presidents implemented three policies which have to be changed. A unionized economy, not allowing trade with other nations, and the politicization of the central bank. There really needs to be basically shock treatment across the board liberalization. He added that Argentina is already transitioning to using the US dollar instead of their own peso. It is incrementally a positive step in terms of, let's say, preserving the dollar's status as a reserve currency. Millet is set to take over as president in three weeks. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. What changes can we expect to see in Argentina under Javier Millet, and especially how will his presidency change Argentina's relations with other countries, including the U.S.? Joining us now to discuss, we have Marcos Schottkis, editor-in-chief of the Portuguese edition of the Epic Times. Marcos Schottkis, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Argentina's new president has been dubbed by the Washington Post as, quote, a leap into the unknown. Now, the U.S. has an interest as we have about $30 billion in trade with Argentina. How do you see this election impacting the U.S.? Well, it impacts the U.S. a lot. And just first of all, isn't a leap into the unknown a little better than the known 140% inflation year on year that we have right now? I mean, the country's economy is just in ruins. So it impacts the U.S. in a bunch of ways. First of all, um, the previous government, the previous administration was very, very pro-China. And geopolitically, um, China has been gaining a lot of leverage in Argentina. They have a space station in Nelkin province. And I mean, even talking rare earth minerals, 
Argentina is a resource for lithium-ion battery resources. So there's this aspect of it. Uh, other than that, it also impacts U.S. interest in the sense that Argentina, it is unknown whether they'll be able to do better with their debt, but they were doing very poorly. So a change is welcome in the way they were dealing with their foreign debt. Those are a few ways um, it does impact the U.S. But other than that, uh, the previous regime was also very pro-Cuba, uh, very pro-Iran even. Um, they were excusing uh, Iran and Hezbollah action to an extent. Um, so I think talking geopolitically and even debt-wise, um, we'll see. But the previous administration was not doing a good job in terms of uh, U.S. interests. I want to get a geopolitics, but first in terms of the economy, because you mentioned how inflation there is at 140 percent. That means about two out of five residents are living in poverty. Now, Javier is an economist. He has no background in politics. He has vowed to change the currency from the peso to the U.S. dollar and get rid of the central bank there. How much do you see the economy playing into how this election turned out? Well, I think it was one of the determining factors, really, that got uh, Javier Milei elected. Um, especially because, oddly enough, despite the economy being in shambles, uh, the Peronist party, the local left, chose the current economy minister uh, to run for the elections. A lot of people even wonder why didn't Alberto Fernandes, the incumbent, go for re-election, but that's because his approval ratings were so low uh, that it, that was just like a failed bet uh, it was just a non-starter to get him on the ballot. So they went for Sergio Massa uh, to rival Milley, which is the economy minister. Many people argued that he wasn't the responsible uh, for getting the economy this bad. He inherited a problem. Uh, he entered late into the administration. But be it as it may, you know, it was the economy minister. Um, so I think it was a very determining factor. One thing that's very delicate for Milley to balance right now is the fact that um, Argentina is really a welfare-prone country. Um, leftist populist leaders have a long lineage there um, of getting a lot of support through welfare, which is completely opposite uh, to what Millet is preaching. So we'll see how he's able to balance Congress, popular support, um, and get things going. But uh, economy-wise, yeah, that was a very big factor. And Marcus, you brought up the Chinese Communist Party and Argentina has a lot of debt to China, and right ahead of this election, China actually loaned Argentina $6.5 billion, hoping that the former economy minister was going to win instead. Now, Javier has vowed that under his administration, Argentina will do no business with communist countries, including China. How likely is that, given the amount of debt we're talking about? So, um, the way he phrased it was more in the sense that uh, he would not promote ties economically or otherwise with what he calls murderous regimes. Uh, he even came as far as calling socialists trash and quote-unquote human excrement, which was uh, very, very poorly seen in the left-wing press in South America. Now, if you go, if you take that back to China, geopolitics and, you know, big power competition in the region, Javier is very likely to not promote ties in the strict sense, but he also said that he's not going to forbid private citizens of exchanging, as that by definition is against his quote-unquote libertarian ideology. Um, but now Argentina is a more complex situation if you're talking debt. Now, let's talk China, let's talk the CCP. If you just get China debt, Argentina has a problem with what they call cross-cancellation clauses, 
What a cross-cancellation clause basically means is that if you want to cancel something in one contract, then all of the other CCP state-owned banks uh, will basically have to be reviewed or might have to be cancelled. The CCP has gained so much leverage in Argentina like that, that they were able to get away when former President Mauricio Macri tried to expel the People's Liberation Army from managing a space station in the province of Neuquén, which had restricted access even to the president himself and local authorities. So the leverage is very big. Uh, we'll see how it plays out. He's not likely to deal with the debt problem uh, anytime soon from, I mean, from what the contracts say themselves and the way they influence local politics. But I think he might have some leverage uh, in dealing with stopping the promotion of ties, maybe getting out of the Belt and Road Initiative, maybe getting out of the BRICS block of countries, which are all things he has previously suggested he intended to do. So it will reduce uh, the influence to some extent, but there are like long-running contracts he won't be able to push out so soon in my analysis. Mm, quite fascinating. Well, Marcus Chalkas, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Coming up, companies including Disney and IBM are pulling ads from social media platform X. Don Ma has more on the controversy and how Musk is responding. Why did OpenAI's board fire its superstar CEO so drastically and abruptly? We take a closer look at the leadership shuffle at the company behind ChatGPT. And millions of Americans hitting the road and taking to the skies for the holiday season. It's anticipated to be the busiest travel season ever. And severe thunderstorms are coming with it. Melina Weiskup has more on how the Transportation Administration plans to avoid a repeat disaster of last year's travel season after the break. Thunderstorms are impacting parts of the U.S. today, but early travelers can expect to avoid major disruptions. This holiday season is expected to be the busiest ever for travel, with a peak hitting on Tuesday and Wednesday. Entity's Melina Weiskup is at Reagan National Airport with more. A record number of travelers for this holiday season. Around 50,000 flights are scheduled for the day before Thanksgiving this week. Around 30 million passengers are expected to be screened through airport security checkpoints between last Friday and next Tuesday. Every year we go down south to New Orleans and have some good southern food. <laughs> so I'm going back to see family. My granddaughter's birthday is on Thanksgiving and I'm expecting a new grandbaby any day now. Data shows that ticket prices are supposed to be around 13% cheaper this year, but passengers tell us they have only seen a minor difference. They were cheaper than if we went tomorrow. <laughs> Much cheaper. So it's pretty average. Um, I think it was still a little pricey. Yeah, it was definitely a little bit cheaper than it has been in past years, so that's nice. And while TSA says it's bolstered up air traffic control staff and pressured airlines to avoid the same mistakes as last year, the agency tells travelers to still be prepared for bad weather. There is some bad weather expected that could affect Thanksgiving travel. This bag is full of like coats and hats. Going back in, I think it's supposed to get a little bit cooler um, than it was when we took off today, so definitely worried about winter storms rolling in at some point. So, And if your flight is canceled or significantly delayed and you choose not to rebook, the Secretary of Transportation reminds you that you are entitled to a full cash refund. Reporting from the Ronald Reagan Airport here in Washington, D.C., Melina Wisecup, NTD News. 
A number of major companies are pulling ads from X, formerly known as Twitter. Among them are IBM, Disney, NBC Universal, and Warner Brothers Discovery. We spoke with NTD Business host Don Ma for more. Don Ma, thanks for joining us. Yeah, always great to be here, Tiffany. To begin, tell us more about the situation. All right, so the companies uh, that you mentioned earlier, uh, some of them actually didn't say why they're uh, pulling their ads from X. Um, so we won't know for sure, but this move does come after a media report uh, by this outlet called Media Matters for America. And what this report said is that uh, it alleges that X is serving ads next to anti-Semitic posts. Um, it actually uh, showcased a couple of screenshots as well uh, with ads uh, appearing next to these, uh, these posts, including from Apple, uh, from IBM as well. And so according to Twitter, actually, uh, these photos were sort of faked, uh, if you will, by, by Media Matters. Not that they were Photoshopped. So let me explain here. What Twitter said was that Media Matters user actually created a few alternate accounts, and those accounts started following a lot of anti-Semitic content creators, and they would do this so that their timeline is populated with anti-Semitic posts. And what they would, would do was to refresh uh, their timeline over and over again until they got an ad to appear next to some of these posts. And this is basically what Twitter has been uh, saying uh, in regards to this situation through their uh, small investigation. Mm. And what about some of the specific data points that X has found? What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so what X has found was that on that particular day that this user was doing this, uh, according to them, there were uh, around 5.5 billion ads served in total uh, on X, um, and only about 50, less than 50 actually, were displayed alongside anti-Semitic content that were mentioned in the Media Matters report. If you put this into a percentage, it's actually less than 1%. And a Twitter spokesperson actually said that uh, this just showcases how efficient Twitter is uh, in terms of actually avoiding these types of scenarios. And for one of the ads that were specifically mentioned in the Media Matters report, Twitter said that uh, this ad was actually served next to uh, an anti-Semitic post that was, that was only seen by one person and it was that very user from Media Matters. So what Twitter is saying is that this report actually misrepresents the user experience when it comes to anti-Semitic content and ads being served next to them. And Elon Musk actually said over the weekend that they plan to file a lawsuit against Media Matters uh, for uh, this false report. And Media Matters president actually had a chance to respond to uh, this tweet from Elon Musk. And it seems like he didn't actually directly dispute uh, what Twitter has uh, alleged here. Um, so I, it's either he didn't want you or for some unknown reason. But if it were me, if I had the chance, uh, the first thing I would do if somebody, somebody is alleging that I created a false report is to dispute that. But you know, for some reason he didn't. And this is uh, the overall general situation here. Wow, quite the roller coaster there, Don Ma. Thank you so much for joining us. All right, thank you. 
Artificial intelligence startup OpenAI has not provided details on exactly why its board suddenly fired Sam Altman. On Friday, it said only that he was not candid in his communications and that new leadership was needed. NTD's Faye Quarter takes a closer look. The board of artificial intelligence from OpenAI suddenly fired CEO Sam Altman on Friday. The board is made up of chief scientist Ilya Sutskiver, Quora CEO Adam D'Angelo, researcher Helen Toner, and tech entrepreneur Tasha McCulley. Altman oversaw the creation of ChatGPT, which he made possible by partnering with Microsoft. ChatGPT is the revolutionary AI chatbot that can answer any prompt. It immediately got 100 million users upon release and is expected to transform the world. OpenAI's organizational structure is very unique. At the very top is a 501c3 nonprofit, which controls the for-profit segment of the company. Investors like Microsoft own shares only in the for-profit segment. This way, the board of directors doesn't have to answer to shareholders and can focus on the good of humanity over profits. Tech reporter Kara Swisher said inside sources told her there was a misalignment between the for-profit and not-for-profit adherents at the company. She said she was told the nonprofit branch felt Altman was pushing things too quickly, like all the new features the firm introduced at its Developer Day conference. AI researcher Alex DeRitter was at OpenAI's Developer Day. You can be pro-monetization and pro-safety at the same time. Um, it, is, it is very difficult to determine what safety really is. DeRitter says he doesn't personally see Altman prioritizing profits over safety. He says the real question is whether or not OpenAI has created something like artificial general intelligence, a hypothetical form of AI that could learn and think the same way humans do. DeRitter speculates the board might be concerned about the possibility of handing that over to a giant for-profit corporation like Microsoft. Microsoft, the commercial entity, would basically have carte blanche understanding what they want to do with such a model. Uh, which means that OpenAI's board of directors, which is mission-bound to protect kind of such AGI releases especially, would, um, would have lost control over, over such technology. It would be in the hands of one of the most powerful companies in the world. Ritter says the invention of artificial general intelligence would be like the invention of electricity. At the time of its invention, nobody would be able to predict the massive ways it could transform the world. Board member Ilya Sutskiver posted on X, I deeply regret my participation in the board's actions. I never intended to harm OpenAI. I love everything we've built together, and I will do everything I can to reunite the company. He wants Altman to return as CEO. Board member Adam D'Angelo, Helen Toner, and Tasha McCauley haven't commented publicly. None has responded to requests for comment. Altman can be returned as CEO if two or more board members vote for his reinstatement. Bay Quarter, NTD News. Coming up, what will the newly released January 6th footage show and what are lawmakers proposing? An investigative journalist joins us to discuss what could happen next. And the incinerated California freeway reopens weeks ahead of schedule. Officials are now searching for a possible suspect in connection to the fire. Stay tuned for more after the break. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some today's top headlines. 
The Israel Defense Forces said they've detained over 300 terrorists in the Gaza Strip since ground operations began and moved them to southern Israel for interrogation. This comes as Israeli troops helped transfer premature babies from Gaza to Egypt. A federal appeals court in D.C. grappled with former President Trump's gag order in his federal election interference case. Trump's team argued the order violated his free speech rights, while prosecutors said Trump could threaten or harass potential witnesses and public figures. President Biden turned 81 today. The White House brushed off concerns over his age, but recent polls show a majority of Americans believe Biden is too old to run in 2024. Right-leaning capitalist candidate Javier Mille won Argentina's presidential election by a wide margin. He's promising drastic changes in a country suffering from spiraling inflation and poverty. And millions of Americans are hitting the roads and taking to the skies this Thanksgiving. The TSA says this holiday season is expected to be the busiest ever for travel, with the peak hitting on Tuesday and Wednesday. Previously unseen footage of the January 6th Capitol breach now available publicly for the first time. What will the new footage show and what will happen next going forward? Joining us now to discuss, we have Jeff Carlson, investigative journalist and co-host of Truth Over News on Epic TV. Jeff Carlson, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. New House Speaker Mike Johnson has publicly released around 90 hours of security footage from January 6th. He's vowing to release 44,000 hours. What do we know now that we didn't before, or do we have more questions? Well, I, I think it's twofold. I think, first of all, we have more questions than ever uh, surrounding January 6th. But what we also have is an affirmation of what we really knew from the very beginning, that yes, there was, there was violence at the Capitol that day, but by and large, most of the activity was peaceful. You know, I can still remember seeing the footage in real time on that day. And the vast majority of people that were walking through the buildings were doing exactly that. Literally just walking through the buildings very calmly, very quietly, almost with a certain level of, of respect. It wasn't the chaos that we, you know, saw countless times on clips that were fed to us. And I guess in some respects, that's where the questions are. There's so many things we still don't know about January 6th. Um, why, why wasn't this footage released earlier? Why were we selectively fed clips from the January 6th committee, which you know, fed into their narrative? Um, you know, and also, what was the federal involvement? How many federal officials were embedded in the crowd? How many FBI agents? What were their actions? So, you know, I think there's a whole renewed interest in, in maybe trying to get to the bottom of this, which I think is fantastic and, and frankly, long, long overdue. Hmm. And on one of your points, why do you think former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy didn't release these tapes? Well, you know, first of all, I think that highlights the reason why he needed to be replaced. I mean, I was one of many voices that was calling for, you know, for him to be ousted and be replaced. This is a promise that he had made uh, early on that he was going to release the January 6 tapes to everybody to the public so that they could see for themselves and for whatever reason he steadfastly refused to do that and it literally took his ouster before those tapes were disseminated broadly and it, it's really important to think about the broader background there are people that went to prison over this we you know if anything the DOJ has gotten more aggressive and yet for some reason 
The GOP Speaker of the House refused to release the tapes despite a promise and despite pleas from his base to do so. You know, literally took his ouster. So I guess, you know, I'll leave that up to the audience to make of, of that as they will. Mm. I want to get to that, but first, you did bring up the January 6th committee, and now that committee alleged that former President Trump was responsible. Do you think these tapes will change that? I, I think they are changing that. Um, you know, I, I think it was apparent to everybody on the day that the events unfolded that this was going to be a political disaster. It was, you know, and there was real violence on that day, but it, there's a there's a lot of things that may or may not have led to that violence that we don't understand. And it was immediately mischaracterized for political purposes. The way I look at it personally is that this was initially a rally that became a protest that in some areas became a riot. But there were plenty of other areas where things, you know, did not have those characteristics and it was never an insurrection. So the release of the tapes allows for a chance of pushback to try and take what has been a firmly pushed narrative and place it in its proper perspective. But there have been a number of congressmen who have been rightly calling for an investigation of the January 6th committee. And I really, really hope that they are going to stick to that and actually do some investigation because this was 100% a politically driven investigation, but it resulted in real people being hurt, real people going to prison over, you know, things that I, I personally, I don't see as a crime. And Jeff, you touched on the real consequences of this following January 6th. We saw long prison sentences handed down. Some are still in jail and some actually took their own lives instead of facing those sentences. Now you retweeted something on Twitter saying, the most underreported story of J6 is widespread police brutality against American citizens. What does the public need to know about what happened that day? Well, you know, there was there's a number of different incidents that have been portrayed as, you know, protesters attacking police. And yes, there was some of that. But what we've also found in, in say, some of the deaths of these protesters, that a lot of times it was instigated by police or that police brutality against the protesters was excessively brutal. Um, and as I mentioned earlier on, we had instances of the Capitol Police firing rubber bullets into the crowd, firing tear gas at critical junctures, which helped to incite the riot. And, you know, it's worth noting that it's, it's kind of easy to forget, but as this was going on, that was when Congress was beginning to debate the electoral votes surrounding uh, Arizona, I believe it was. And of course, as this broke out, we had the shutdown and congressional debate never resumed. And Mike Pence swore in Joe Biden at the following day in the morning as the new president and congressional debate was halted completely. And Jeff, following the release of these tapes, what should House Republicans do now? Well, they should keep releasing the tapes. And I mean, as you, you mentioned in your question, you know, should they push back against the January 6th committee? Absolutely, they should push back. You know, I've always been of the mind that transparency is, is paramount. And whatever the truth is, wherever the facts lead, that's what should be followed. So let's get the facts out, let's find out, and let's definitely explore the January 6th committee. My, my personal take on from what I know is that it's going to be very, very enlightening if we do so. Mm. Jeff Carlson, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me, good to see you. The I-10 freeway fiasco is officially over in Los Angeles after severe fire damage. And today's Christina Corona has more from downtown LA. 
There's a sigh of relief here in downtown Los Angeles, where traffic is moving again in both directions on the reopened 10 freeway. Caltrans announced that lanes going east and westbound on the 10 freeway in downtown Los Angeles were reopened on Sunday night, following a massive fire that forced the roadway to close from Alameda Street to Santa Fe Avenue. Officials initially had indicated that the closure would be indefinite. Governor Gavin Newsom attributed the swift reopening of the busy roadway to the dedicated repair crews with over 250 individuals working 12-hour shifts 24-7 at the job site. They got us two or three days ahead of schedule, working with security uh, crews uh, and working uh, with our partners locally. We were able to secure uh, the kind of equipment uh, that we needed to get on site to make sure that we were able to complement that with the man hours and woman hours. On Saturday, Cal Fire also released photos and a description of a person of interest sought in connection with the fire. The person is approximately six feet tall and weighs 170 to 190 pounds. He is believed to be between the ages of 30 and 35 and has black hair. However, several protesters gathering near the freeway told us how the freeway closure affected their business. We worked hundreds of owner operators, minority local owner operators, but AB5 came along and destroyed our business because it wants us to make those owner operators into our employees. And the reason we're out here today in front of the 10 freeways because there were actually owner operators we saw working. So we're wondering why Mayor Karen Bass and Governor Newsom playing favoritism, letting owner operators still work in some areas while destroying owner operators in other areas. Karen Bass has not issued a statement regarding the protests. Columns are being restored by workers behind me and officials did tell me there will be periodic closures in the coming weeks and months as repairs continue. Christina Corona, NTD News, Los Angeles. Coming up in college football, could an injury cost this undefeated team their shot at a title? We'll discuss as NTD's Dave Martin joins us in the studio after the break. Welcome back, and now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin in studio. Dave, plenty of topics to discuss here. Let's start with the NFL. Tonight, we have a Super Bowl rematch in Kansas City. Do you think the Chiefs will win this one? No. I mean, the Chiefs may be 7-2, and two, but they don't have their usual explosive offense this year. I would say it's because they don't have Tyreek Hill, but they didn't have him last year, and they still won the Super Bowl then. You know, opposing defenses have really keyed in on Travis Kelsey. They're looking for someone else to emerge around him. Basically, they wrote a strong defense to get this far. I think, though, Philly looks like the best team in the league, and I'm sure they'd like to get some revenge tonight. Mm. Now, elsewhere in the league, the Jets actually benched quarterback Zach Wilson yesterday. Was that expected? Yeah, but it was expected, you know, weeks ago. I think they would have done this sooner had they had a more experienced backup behind him. Tim Boyle does not have a very long uh, NFL track record. Now, their offense has been struggling since Aaron Rodgers got hurt in the very first game. But I don't think this is, can be all blamed on the quarterbacks. I mean, their offensive line has been completely ravaged by injuries. There's not much time to hold on to the ball. Uh, I think the team, though, is just really hoping to hold on until Rodgers makes some kind of miraculous return next month. Uh, but I think it might be too little too late. 
Speaking of injuries, switching gears now to college football, Florida State star quarterback Jordan Travis is out for the rest of the season with an injury. Do you think the playoff committee will dock them points for this? I really hope they don't. I mean, the committee shouldn't just presume that they can't do well without him. You know, what if they have another star quarterback on their depth chart? Or what if they switch their offense around and find another way to be successful? Ultimately, though, we might not ever find out. I mean, they could drop in the rankings this week, but we can't presume why. I mean, Washington is right behind them. They're undefeated as well, and they had a more impressive win over the weekend. I think the committee, though, would catch quite a break if Florida State just lost, and they never really had to answer this question. Speaking of the committee, it seems like they have some more hard decisions coming soon. Michigan playing Ohio State this weekend. How far do you think the loser will have to fall? I think it'll depend on how close the game is. If it goes to overtime or it's one on a last second play, maybe they only fall to fourth, although it'll be interesting to see who jumps ahead of them. Uh, but I think the committee's though, their biggest nightmare though is if the winner then loses in the Big Ten title game the week after, and then Georgia loses in the SEC and Washington loses in the Pac-12. Then you'd have like eight one-loss teams looking for four playoff spots. That would be quite a disaster. I think all these scenarios though are justifications for why we needed the 12-team playoffs come next year. So you can finally get some automatic bids. Quite interesting, Walt Davis. Always thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.